filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. I would actually be able, I have several friends that live in Baltimore. I could just find a place to sit and hang out. Um, <laughs> and then Ben will drive up and you will buy him a beer. And then you will yeah, go. Ben could call me and I would say, come to this bar. It's the nearest one to me. The thing is, you wouldn't even have to stay in Baltimore, Jason. Like, I don't think no. Ben would have an attachment to going to Baltimore for that. He would be happy to meet you right. If anywhere. he's going to make you wait around, he better drive all the way. I mean, also, I would want some Maryland-style crab cakes if I'm going to go to Baltimore. Oh, uh, that's, I mean, that's not on the Fabian Herbers tab, but I mean, I could point you in the direction of where they are. Well, no, yes. I would get a beer from you and then yes. go myself to get okay. some uh, Maryland-style crab cakes. I like that you say Maryland-style because... Well, uh, that's what they are. Well, it's not so much that there's a style as that there's one place that is does, is good at them and everyone else is awful. <laughs> well, that's true. It is true, actually. That is the official position of filibuster. If if your crab cake is more bread than crab, you, you're doing something terribly, terribly wrong. If the ratio is at all close. Yeah. If it's not 90-10 at the minimum, you're doing it wrong. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the crab cake and soccer podcast. I'm Adam Taylor, joined as always by Jason Anderson and Ben Bromley, who strangely are agreeing on something involving the name of one of their states. Don't count on that happening much more. We're all from blackandredunited.com. That's where you can find us writing about DC United, Major League Soccer, the U.S. national teams, and lots more. We've got a good show for you this week. We're going to do a very short uh, DC United roundup that will bleed into some some draft coverage. If you missed it last week, we had Travis Clark on the program to talk all about the MLS Super Draft, which is coming up this Thursday. So go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, we're also going to talk to Alicia Rodriguez from thegoatparade.com about the newest soccer club in Los Angeles. It's so new. It kind of doesn't exist in a lot of ways yet. And we're going to talk to her about that. Uh, we're also going to talk about Camp Strudel, the now much more German form of Camp Cupcake. And Ben is rolling his eyes and shaking his head violently at me. Uh, that's the U.S. national team, men's national team's January camp. D.C. United has two, maybe three, depending on how you want to define it, players in that camp. We're going to talk about them. And then we're going to open it up to you, our listeners, and our Twitter box segment of the show before we do anything though ben stop shaking your head violently and tell me what are you drinking so uh, dinner tonight took longer than i expected so all i had time to do was pour some woodford reserve in a glass i got woodford reserve in my stocking at christmas and so i've been slowly sipping on that so it's a tough life it's a good christmas that is a good christmas just by it's unless like the rest of your presents were all punishments 
And then there was one that was like, no, you know, here's here's some good bourbon. No, it was it was all, it was all pretty good, and the Woodford Reserve was things that were tricks or uh, things yeah. that would ruin. You know, it's a gift that you have to take, but also it's just an irritating pain. No, no. Well, the only thing that is almost slightly like that is we got some artwork that we have to like hammer into the wall to put up. So that's a slight uh, task, but still, it's worth it because it, we, we need okay. artwork to decorate uh, our new house because we're bad yes. at putting things on walls. And you should email like artwork to filibusterpodcast at gmail dot com. <laughs> You should also do that. Please make it safe for work. Yeah, don't don't send us anything too ri- ridiculous in that department. But send otherwise ridiculous things. Yeah, oh yeah. So yeah, Ben yeah. can put them on the wall. And you house. can find it at your work and send it to us. Uh, ben <laughs> will put it on his wall. I, I might put it on a wall or two. Uh, I, Jason does not speak for me. Just because you send it to me does not mean I'm going to put it on my wall in my house. If I yes, come to does. Ben's house, yes, it does. I will try and put it up on the wall if he doesn't do it. Jason can say I will succeed building other people's things. I'll try. Jason, what are you drinking? Uh, I have, well, I should say that um, after dinner, but before we came on, I've already had an old fashioned, but that's gone now. Um, so what I've got in my glass and by glass, I mean a Pilsner glass because all my glasses are otherwise in the dishwasher. Uh, I have a Trogues uh, Java head oatmeal stout. Uh, which is made with uh, coffee. I don't know where they get their coffee that they make it with, but uh, as far as coffee oatmeal stouts go, it's it's uh, pretty high on the uh, standard, or high on the list, I should say, and uh, it's it's pretty good. Uh, I would have had more of the St. Festivus from last week, but I drank it all. You should get that. That's even better than this. I am uh, a few weeks ago. You might remember that I had something uh, from Clown Shoes called Evil Crawfish uh, yes. Yes. Red IPA. I found another, a different um, Clown Shoes beer with another wonderful label and silly name. Uh, I am drinking Clown Shoes Undead Party Crasher American Imperial Stout. The label involves a guy fighting various types of zombies one of them appears to be well they're not really zombies actually now that i look more closely one of them is a werewolf in a white pinstripe suit and a pink (laughs) shirt a black tie and a pink um uh pocket linen one of them is a miami-based werewolf don't you mean an ascot no it's 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 a pocket linen it's a necktie and a pocket linen okay yes i'm i'm getting my fancy clothing yeah, and, and wrong. An ascot would replace the tie and yes, go I know. underneath I'm, the shirt. <laughs> I, I do know what an ascot is, despite my previous statement. Uh, there's a Frankenstein's monster holding a comically large mug. Uh, it looks like a red plastic mug. There is a zombie wearing a party hat and missing part of a leg. There's an evil leprechaun, and there is a um, a, I don't know, maybe the chick from the ring uh, crawling on the ceiling and it is a tile ceiling like you would find in an office building or a school building from way back in the day <laughs> and a banner <laughs> a banner that says welcome trademark attorneys <laughs> <laughs> it is just the, a wonderful beer land people most prepared for a Miami based werewolf and his friends to crash their party so basically oh, this is the perfect beer for you a dude in military gear it has like metal stakes and a crossbow with a sight and uh, knee pads. 
I don't know why he has knee pads, but he has knee pads. I mean, you got to protect your knees. Yeah. Uh, um, Max Brooks uh, wrote a book, not World War Z, but his other book about what the things you should get should there be a zombie apocalypse. I thought it was. Uh, mo- that- oh, go I, ahead. I thought it was more important to protect your neck. No, I mean that's first, but you know, if you're going to be fighting zombies all the time to the point that trademark attorneys might call you in. Uh, and say, look, they're zombies, but also a leprechaun and a werewolf who definitely is still in the Miami Vice era and, uh, and Frankenstein, um, or Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Frankenstein's monster, not Frankenstein. Also, the werewolf appears to be dropping a briefcase full of documents. So I think the werewolf might be the trademark, one of the trademarks. Oh, okay. It's definitely an office party, though, involving lots of scary people. I I am impressed. I am impressed that these attorneys could hold off that gang for long enough that this lone zombie killer be- could be contacted and I guess payment arranged and travel organized. I mean, that's a long standoff. Well, he looks like the only one being violent. I'm I'm willing oh. to take the monster side on this one. Okay, okay, he could be the aggressor. Yeah, I think well, that's the he, that's the really the point of any zombie movie. It's true. That humans are terrible. Um, so it said that the name of it is Undead Party Crasher. I think that the undead are that there's a party crasher who's undead. No. There's yeah. a party crasher to the undead party. Yes. He's shown up and ruining their he party. He with he's, he's ruining everything. I mean, if you show up to a party and act violent, you're definitely ruining a party. It's, it's definitely your fault. Um, and before we ruin this podcast, let's talk about Patrick Niarco, who is DC United's newest wide midfielder. He was acquired via trade from the Chicago fire last week. For fire, a, fire, fire. A chant that he will hear much less now that he is in DC. Um, he was acquired for a second round pick in this Thursday's super draft. Ben, do you like this move for yeah, DC United? Yes, definitely. I, uh, the rumors were that DC United was going to have to give up more than a, uh, draft pick. Uh, we were thinking that United would have to give up a draft pick and some sort of allocation money at the minimum to make this deal work. And so the fact that they got it done for just a draft pick is pretty good. And if you look at the recent history of second round draft picks for DC United and really most MLS teams, you're not going to get a better player than Patrick Niarco for a second round draft pick. Last year it was, uh, Dan Metzger was the DC United second round draft pick. Uh, I think you have to go back to Chris Corb to find a second Corb round. was the first round. Joe Willis was the second round that year. Okay. Was Corb? I, I, I don't think Corb, was, Corb was a second rounder. Corb, you're right. Yeah, Corb, maybe Joe Willis was deeper. Joe Willis was third round. I think That's what it was. Yeah. So you have to go back to, I think, Corb to find a second round draft pick for United that has actually stuck. And that was 2011. And I think Patrick Niarco is probably better, still better at his position than Corb is at his. So even so, I I think it's a, a great deal. Uh, it gets Niarco back with uh, Chris Rolf, who he has uh, said that he wants to uh, play with again. And so I think it's a good move all around. Jason, what does Niarco bring to the team that we didn't already have? And there's a one word answer. I want you to start with that one word and then expound yeah. in your usual fashion speed um yes obviously. And we, we're seeing we're seeing a focus on that um we called for it and it wasn't like we were uh very prescient and calling for it at the end of the season the team needs speed they've addressed that on the left um lamar nagel is a little faster than chris pontius at this point in both of their careers um Niarco is 
faster than Nagel is. Um, so it's a big upgrade in that department. And the, the next factor after that is the fact that he can dribble at people um, and beat them consistently. Um, that's something that United has really struggled with to combine dribbling and speed. We've got a couple guys that can get past their man, but then they have to pass the ball immediately or else they'll have to dribble past that guy all over again. Um, Niarco has enough speed where he gets past the guy and then he doesn't necessarily have to get the ball off of his foot right away. Um, he can take the next touch and actually get further down the field. And really, when you have someone that can dribble, that can break through a line of defense, you have someone that can throw schemes off, um, defensive schemes, and break down the structure of an opposing defense. And that really helps across the attack. It doesn't just help on the right side, which is where he generally plays. Um, what it does is it causes everything else to sort of scramble and stretch out. You know, if he beats the left back, the left center back or a defensive midfielder, somebody has to fly over to try and help out. And all of a sudden the structure that was in place is no longer really there and spaces open up for other players. Um, what we shouldn't expect, people should not look for Niarco to add goals. He's not going to score any more goals than Nick DeLeon does. Um, he doesn't finish any better than Nick DeLeon does. If anything, um, he tends to get into more scoring positions. Um, though over the last couple of years, I've noticed a tendency for him to sort of stay out of the box if he can, just to sort of reduce the fact that he's not a good finisher. He sort of mitigates it by just playing as a setup player. Um, but that's fine because he's the kind of player that if he stays healthy um, and there, there are questions about his health. Um, he did tear an ACL in 2014 at RFK um, and missed out on half of Chicago's 2015 season. On the other side of that, this is my, my standard response to that is that when he returned from injury, he came on at halftime, uh, this for at halftime as a substitute. And, um, uh, that was with, I think Chicago had played 16 games at that point, 15 games. Um, he played every game after that. Um, he either appeared as a starter or as a sub. Um, and I think it was 19 games overall and, uh, 14. I think he started 14 and the last 12 games he started and played more than an hour every single time. So as far as his fitness goes, I don't think we have to worry about his knee. I think he's fully recovered. Um, I don't think he's as fast as before the, the ACL tear, but I do know that the guys from Hot Time and Old Town have said that he seemed to get faster as the season wore on. And maybe that's just getting your decision-making back, getting your touch back, and all of a sudden you can put your speed to better use and you seem faster. Um, but either way, I think Niarco's in line to potentially start on the right, um, whether or not Nick Dalio makes the rumored move into the middle um, or whether or not Lamar Nagel takes over on the left and DeLeon ends up competing on either side. Um, I think Niarco is someone that, if he's playing at his best, ends up as a starter for this team straight away because the team desperately needs what he brings to the table. It would be nice if he could add four or five goals to it, but if he could add four or five goals, we wouldn't have been able to get him for a second-round draft pick. Then again, see Chris Rolfe. That's true. Sometimes teams are are dumb. And the Chicago Fire have been a wonderful example of that in in recent years anyway. I, I would note that they were in a bad position with Niarco. That's um, true. Niarco had, had asked for a trade yeah. um, even before, they, before the when new... When Frank Yallop was still in, in place. Or no, I guess it was after he was let go, but before they'd done anything as far as... While Brian Bliss was in in place. Right. Well, not before... But before Nelson Rodriguez took over as GM and before... Um, and I'm going to butcher his first name, 
uh, Velko Poundovich was named the head coach. He had already put in a request, and I guess they did try to talk him into sticking around, but um, his mind was made, and you know now he's in a, a better place, if we're being honest, because the Fire are still a, a couple of years probably away from being any good. So my next question, and I guess the last question of this segment, because we need to wrap it up, is what does this mean for DC United in the Super Draft? United is a team that does typically draft the best available player regardless of need, but wide midfield has suddenly gone from a a position where we probably should have been looking for somebody, especially since young guys can contribute pretty quickly in that position in MLS, to having basically three starting quality players for two spots. Um, Ben, do you think United should look past outside midfielders in the draft, even if there's, you know, the guy is edging out a player at a different position or should this just not affect their thinking at all? I mean, it should affect their thinking a little bit in the sense that if there's a tie to be broken, it should break in favor of the player who's not a wide midfielder. But if there's somebody who is clearly better than everybody else uh, in the draft at that, when you get to number 13, I think you still have to take that player. They can uh, send him down to Richmond for a year or two, uh, let him develop there, and then hopefully uh, once he's uh, ready to pass Niarco, ready to pass Nagel, ready to pass De Leon, uh, he can get into the lineup, and if that's the case, he's going to be a pretty solid contributor for this team. Yeah. And then there's also Miguel Aguilar, who's apparently been really working hard this off season. So if we do draft a wide midfielder, he's going to have a, a lot of hurdles to jump over before he, he sees the field on any kind of regular basis. Yeah. Um, but hopefully oh, if, if we're drafting a wide midfielder, hopefully he's going to be even at 13, hopefully he's going to have a little higher ceiling than Lamar Nagel eventually. Hopefully. The the other thing I'd point out, having looked at the draft pretty extensively um, for the purposes of our mock draft that we may or may not get into later in the show, um, there aren't really that many wide midfielders that are going to go before DC United is involved. It's just not a very deep field. Um, the one player that uh, might come up as a wide midfielder down the road is Omar Holness, who plays as a central midfielder for um, North Carolina. And since he's a generation Adidas player that has played for Jamaica, he's not going to be on the board at 13A in all likelihood, unless every team drafting ahead of DC has decided that they're not impressed with him. If you know, his interview went bad or what have you, I don't know. But my suspicion is that the only player that projects as a wide midfielder in MLS will be off the board and DC will be looking at players in other positions, whether they're center backs or forwards that but not in central midfield obviously is a huge need but wide midfield i don't think it's going to become an issue we will be right back to talk more about the draft maybe we'll see if we get into that and we'll talk about lafc with alicia rodriguez from the gopre.com so stick around this is filibuster the black and red united podcast hey ben you know how you're always going on and on about legal advice on this show well, and, yeah. not, and you never, ever use the term correctly? Well, of course not. I try not to use the term correctly. Right. Our new sponsors, the Ehrlich Law Office, they do use the term correctly all the time. In fact, that is what they do. Oh, so if I actually wanted legal advice, I should probably go to them? 
Yeah, exactly. If you're in Northern Virginia or the District of Columbia, they handle employment issues, general civil litigation, defamation, lots of stuff. Uh, they have you covered. Jason, I'm sorry, they do not have you covered because you are in Maryland where they are not operating just yet. Uh, fine. So Ehrlich Law Office, it's, a, it's really good people. Uh, Josh is their, their main proprietor, Josh Ehrlich. Uh, he's a law school friend of mine. His, one of their, their attorneys, Ben, uh, a lot of our listeners know him from games and, and other places. So guys, for a free consultation, go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. We are joined now by the incomparable Alicia Rodriguez from thegoatparade.com. She's here to talk with us a little bit about LAFC. Alicia, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, it's fun to be back. You know our tradition here. We have to ask, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm going to mix it up tonight. I'm going to have a, a glass of uh, Pinot Noir for for relaxation later on. All right. You're in California. That makes perfect sense. I'm sure it's a nice local Pinot, which is not something we get out here on the East Coast. Sure, sure. So this week, LAFC finally announced their their new colors and their new logo. Um, it's a very Art Deco-inspired kind of lettermark for LA inside a shield. Black and gold are their colors. Apparently, they'll have a, a brightish sort of red as a, a, a tertiary trim color um what do you make of of the the whole graphic identity of of the new club yeah i mean i think so far so good um you know i'll be completely honest i'm not somebody who really obsesses over design elements i mean i think if it doesn't look awful i'm you know i'm pretty much satisfied with it for the most part um but yeah i mean i think it's something that while uh, a lot of folks did point out in mls circles that there are some derivative uh elements of it uh you know i do think it's the kind of thing that is you know fresh and sharp and something at least in the local market that is you know for mostly unique let's say um you know besides some some of the angels uh imagery i suppose that you know that it takes from that but i think when you're talking about the city of angels you know you're you're bound to have wings and angel angelic uh imagery and that sort of thing so i i think it turned out pretty well yeah, it's right there in in the name of of the city. Yeah. Um how how is the the reaction in LA? Like you were at the unveiling, how were the the Black Army 1850? How were the other fans there that are are ready and raring for LAFC? Cuz there actually are fans that are ready and raring for LAFC. How are they reacting to the uh to the new logo? Yeah, I mean, I think if uh, the people who were in attendance at the party on Thursday night after the the unveiling earlier in the day, I mean, of course, they were thrilled. I mean, you know, I'm sure some of the euphoria of just getting to have some sort of event to attend helped fuel that. But it seemed like people were really pretty psyched about the the new crest and they were selling uh, merchandise at the party and there were shopping bags everywhere. So, I mean, that's always a good sign, I suppose. Um you know, Having I, come from the DC United rebrand uh, event, shopping bags everywhere is definitely a good sign. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, I, you know, I ran into somebody 
earlier in the day, just a stranger at a cafe who noticed I had some LAFC. I just had a folder from, from the press conference and they, they at like this guy came up, Hey, what do you, you know, what do you do? And then he started talking about how much he's, he's going to be an LAFC fan and he wasn't into MLS before. And now he's like super excited about doing it. And I mean, I think there's been a lot of, um, you know, mocking of LAFC fans from around MLS. And I'm sure some of that is just bound to happen, whatever, you know, people, people want to make fun of other people, but I do think that there can be some complaints, I suppose, about not supporting the galaxy. And, you know, there's already an MLS team there. Like, why are you waiting for a couple of years for another team to come along? That seems silly. But I do think that there are the people coming out of the woodwork, um, you know, not just former Chivas USA fans, but people who are into soccer but haven't been into MLS before who are genuinely interested in, in getting into it now. And time will tell if there's enough of those people out there to really build a huge fan base to compete with the Galaxy. But on an anecdotal level, it seems like there is certainly some some demand. I know you said you're you're not the type to obsess over the graphic identity of of the team i on the other hand am so i'm going to kind of pull a jürgen klinsman and put you outside of your comfort zone uh the new club in atlanta atlanta united fc has similar colors they're Mm -hmm. they're a little bit more muted or a little darker kind of gold and red and it seems like they're going to focus on black and red um which as a dc united fan strikes me as uh the flattery of the highest form i guess you could say um, whereas LAFC decided to focus on black and gold, which as a Purdue alum, I obviously also appreciate. Um, I don't know where my question is going. I just had those two things I wanted to say. I guess, what do you think about, you, you mentioned that some people pointed out that LAFC is a little, that the colors might be interpreted as a little bit derivative. What do you make of the fact that they went in a slightly different direction than Atlanta with their colors? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the owners were talking up how unique it was and then people online pretty quickly jumped on that and were like, uh, come on now, you know, naming off the various teams you just, you just named. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, it seemed like people kind of liked the, the color scheme. I know that there was a segment of folks who were really gunning for a black and silver, um, color scheme for LAFC. It's sort of a trade-off. I mean, on the one hand, the Raiders are a pretty popular brand out here, and obviously that would evoke the Raiders. And they might um, be coming back to town soon. Exactly. The Kings also have a black and silver um, color scheme, so I think going black and gold is probably a better idea because you're differentiating yourself in that respect. Um, and then, you know, I was talking to some of the owners about the the L.A. Uh, lettering and, you know, putting it on baseball hats and stuff like that. I mean, they told me that obviously, I think when it comes to kind of iconography, sports iconography of, of the region, you know, the LA Dodgers, LA is, is the iconic, um, you know, design for the area. Uh, you know, obviously I don't, I, I think they're realistic. They don't think they're going to be at that level anytime soon, but I think they're hoping that they can make some, you know, inroads in that and, and have it be kind of a cool brand. And I know a lot of people have talked about, um, you know, the, the LAFC, you know, going after the millennials and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I think that there's obviously on, on, on some level quite a lot of validity to doing that. Um, you know, 
we may not have said specifically millennials as a target market that much in the past in regards to MLS, but that's clearly the generation that is the target market at this point in MLS overall. So why wouldn't LAFC go after that group in particular? Yeah, we've heard we've heard that demographic. I think most of us are at least adjacent to that that demographic uh, on the show right now. We've heard we heard that thrown around a lot by DC United as well. So it's obviously something MLS enough. And your point about the LA Dodgers being the iconic LA is is on point. And I think part of that is because it's naturally on a baseball hat all mm-hmm. the time. Like it, that's where the LA lives. But I've noticed more and more when you see a baseball cap that references Chicago, it's the Chicago Bulls nowadays. It's not the Cubs or the White Sox. It used to be the White Sox or the Cubs if you were outside of Chicago. Now mm-hmm. it's no longer the case. So I think there's there's reason to think that there's inroads to be made there. So, and, and the hat they showed at the, or the, the designer of the logo showed that was, it was a really good looking hat. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. They were popular at the party. Let me tell you, Jason. Uh, my question really gets away from the branding stuff. I, I think people are aware that I'm not a big fan of branding. <laughs> um, uh, so I guess what I would, I would wonder about and Adam brought up, um, the former supporters groups of Chivas USA, how are the actual fans that have already kind of adapt, uh, adopted LAFC? They're, they're, they're MLS fans who weren't going to support the galaxy, no matter what. Um, how are they taking this uh, other than, I mean, obviously it's exciting just to have something, um, but are people looking at it and saying, well, I don't know about the direction of things or, or are they just excited that there's anything at all going on? Uh, I would say overall, I think they're excited that anything at all is going on. And um, it's obviously a really early stage. I think for, you know, up until about last month, you know, times were kind of lean as far as LAFC was concerned because they announced the team in, in October of 2014. Um, and then there wasn't really much of anything until May uh, of 2015, you know, announcing the stadium site, which was obviously a big deal. And then really not much until uh, last month when they uh, announced the their first soccer hire. Um, and, and so as a result, you know, I think people are just kind of waiting for, for stuff to happen. I mean, I'm sure as we get closer to the launch of the the actual team, you know, there's going to be some more, um, it's going to be a lot easier to make judgments because we're going to, you know, look at hirings and players being signed and coaches being hired and that sort of thing and say, Oh, that, that seems really terrible or, Oh, that seems amazing. Um, you know, and there'll probably be some more differences of opinion. But I think at this point, um, the team has been pretty savvy with trying to get input from supporters, especially those who belong to supporters groups already, and 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 trying to you know solicit some input from them. I don't think that the I think the club has been you know pretty clear in that they're not going to turn over the running of the club to supporters, of course, but at least um, you know meeting with them a few times a year, you know, trying to get some input on uh, things that are important to them. I know after they announced the stadium site, supporters got together and talked about kind of a wish list of with the club, a wish list of what they want to see at the new stadium. You know, some ideas are going to be feasible probably along the lines of what the club was already thinking. Some things are probably going to be out of the realm of possibility, but they were in contact with, with the supporters. And I think that that gesture alone helped a lot of them, feel like they were part of the process and feel like 
the club actually cares about them and wants them to, you know, play a role in the building of, of this club. I, I guess my other question, since you brought up um, the soccer hire, which is uh, John Thorrington, who retired for uh, playing for DC United. Um, one thing I thought was interesting uh, reading about the hire was that it was emphasized that he is bilingual. He speaks English and Spanish. Um, how important is that proving to be so far? And, and do you think it's going to continue to uh, be a big factor or not a factor or, or however things are going currently? Well, I don't think it hurts. Um, I, I don't think that there's a, a circumstance in which you say, well, he, he can also speak Spanish and he's comfortable speaking Spanish in public. Uh, he busted out the Spanish in his introductory press conference and then he did it again at the party this last week in front of all the supporters unprompted. He just, you know, started talking in Spanish, uh, halfway through, which was really great to see. And the fact that he was comfortable doing that, um, you know, is, is, is nice. I don't know necessarily if that, um, indicates any sort of direction as far as what the, the club will be doing. But I think that if he's comfortable, you know, speaking Spanish, hopefully I would venture to guess that he's comfortable kind of going into Latin American soccer, scouting that, talking to people, you know, not necessarily closing off that as a, as a possibility. Um, you know, I think with, with some of a handful of the MLS teams in recent years that have kind of turned their backs on the, um, you know, Spanish speaking players and, and not really marketed to, um, Latino fans. I think they've done so and it, it's, it's been bad. I don't, I don't really see any circumstance where it's been a good thing. Um, and, and it, I think it's held a lot of those clubs back. Obviously there was a team that went the other direction and it, it didn't go so well, but I think that overall it, it, it can't hurt that, that John Thornton, um, is bilingual and he, he's comfortable. Um, you know, speaking to the press and speaking to everybody in both languages, for sure. Uh, my one question is about uh, the plethora of LAFC owners. Uh, <laughs> I, I know we, it's it, LAFC has one, 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 two, three owners that are the the main owners. But what do you think their idea is behind having twenty plus owners as part of the ownership group? Is it to is it for marketing? Is it for, are they going to actually play a role? What, what's the, do you know what their thinking is behind all of this? I'm not sure if I, I know the exact, um, you know, strategy behind it. I think it's probably a combination of factors. Um, I mean, one, if you get a bunch of people, rich people to pool their money together, that probably means you're going to have more money to work with. And um, it, they've said that they're not going to be using public money in building the stadium I think there may be a little bit of wiggle room in the actual wording that they've used, but certainly, you know, California is not a state like many states nowadays, but California for a long time has not been a state where um, public subsidies for stadiums has been really feasible at all. So they need a lot of money to build a stadium in the first place. They had to, I think they bu- they've paid $110 million, uh right off the bat in, in their expansion fee up front. So that's a lot of money you have to put out in the first place, but Beyond that, um, they have 26 owners. Obviously, not all of them are going to be involved in the day-to-day stuff. It's three uh, principal partners who are doing the day-to-day running of the team. Do, do you know uh, what percent those three own together roundabout? No, they haven't disclosed any of those details. 
Um, but they've made it very clear that those three are the three primary owners and then 23 other people. And I don't know, you know, how it's apportioned out or anything like yeah. that, but, um, it's pretty obvious that it's a combination of like networking and like friends. Hey, I'm, you know, I work with this guy at the Dodgers and let's bring him aboard. But also like there's people from different kind of, um, uh, industries who are coming together. Mm -hmm. So like they've talked up, like, for example, they've talked up like Chad Hurley a lot who started YouTube. He's one of the co-founders of YouTube is one of the co-owners and they're like, Hey, we can draw upon his experience and, you know, building a multimedia platform that was wildly successful. And, um, obviously they have several celebrity owners that they can use. I mean, the, <laughs> the newest one is Will Ferrell, but right. you know, Magic Johnson. Mia Hamm, Nomar Garcia-Para, like those are people that can come in front of cameras for big events and, you know, kind of, you know, are pretty comfortable in front of the camera and people want to talk to them and, you know, they're, they're well known. So that, that helps too, but there's also business people, marketing people. So I think it's a combination of factors. They have money, they're, they know, <laughs> they know the right people and they come from industries that the club, I think, believes they can help out in, in building this, this project. You mentioned uh, Mia Hamm, and she's been pretty vocal about trying to eventually push the ownership group into launching an NWSL team. Um, LA hasn't had a women professional women's soccer team since what WPS and the Soul found, mm -hmm. folded um, several years ago. Do you have any more information than that on on her and and the club's potential efforts to? to push women's soccer or is it still really that nascent as Mia Hamm just saying something? Yeah, I think it's pretty nascent at this point. I mean, I, I asked her specifically about the women's soccer um, team question because she brought it up right when the team was uh, announced initially. And it was something that I'm just, you know, I'm curious about. Obviously I've been covering the team and I want to cover all the angles. And when I've asked uh, some of the other owners in the past about, other aspects of building the club from a soccer perspective, you know, the academy, USL, you know, bringing the roster together on the MLS level, that sort of thing. Until recently, they've been, hey, you know, we're, we're just, we're just getting going here. Like, you know, hold on, we'll get to that <laughs> eventually. And, you know, we're talking about our options and that sort of thing. I knew for her, she would, she would give me an answer on some level. Obviously, I didn't figure it was going to be, yeah, we have a plan and we're going into NWSL at X year, but I just wanted to hear what she thought at that point. And I think on the bright side for those who want to see um, a first division women's soccer team back in California, which there is none at this point, which I think is still kind of crazy to think about the fact that she said, yeah, we're still talking about it. It's still um, in our minds for sure. We have to wait and see when we get to that point, of course, you know, MLS comes first. Um, and, you know, I think it was really pretty notable that she said that the NWSL needs to stick around that long. Um, you know, obviously we've had two failed leagues already. And so, you know, she's realistic that we can't guarantee that that's going to be the case when we get to 2019, 2020, when maybe um, an LA team could come about. But it sounded like she was optimistic about it and, and genuinely so. I don't think it was, you know, she doesn't strike me as the kind of person who just BSs. I think she she's pretty honest with what she says overall. And she said that it was something that they were still thinking about. But, I, you know, it's certainly if it comes to fruition, it's going to be several years, uh, you know, down the road. That's everything we have on LAFC, I think. 
Um, who, who's going to go number one in the super draft on Thursday? Oh, you know, I, if I'm being completely honest, um, I don't follow the, the, the prospects as minutely anymore because I don't have Chivas USA at the top of the order to uh, <laughs> worry about. I, I'll, be, I'll be totally honest. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it seems like Josh Yarrow is probably going to do it, but, you know, there's always the, you know, I, I've started to hear chatter of, oh, what's his, re- you know, what's his real position? And uh, maybe maybe he'll fall as a result. But it seems like, I mean, any uh, any top prospect is going to, you know, get the the back chatter in the in the final days. But it seems like he's still the odds-on guy to to probably go first overall, and to a team that has a lot of holes, and so they could use you know as much as help as they can get. All right, Alicia, why don't you uh, thank you, of course, for for coming on. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on. Um, so my writing on LASC is primarily on thegoatparade.com. Um, breaking news. We are working on a rebrand of the site right now, but, um, but yeah, for now it's the goat parade and, we love uh, breaking news on this site, especially yeah. news about the internet. That is the news that we specialize in. But, I know, but on, I the, know. on the other hand, I'm kind of, uh, kind of unhappy that what there'll be one less goat related soccer site. Uh, yeah. Adam is you are unhappy unhappy I'm sure. I am thrilled ben about and I that. Are, are very sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, there was a, a small contingent of people who still wanted the the old name to persist, but I'm I've been getting like frankly kind of abuse for for keeping the name. And to be honest, I think it's just time to to switch it over. And I know you guys have taken the mantle up of the goat, so <laughs> in, in quite a way. So you know, I not th- always I, I willingly. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But uh, but yeah, I I feel like you guys can can kind of carry the torch from here on out. But um. Otherwise, uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Soccer Musings. Thanks again to Alicia Rodriguez for coming on the show. We're going to take a rare second break for Filibuster, so stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. It is now, unfortunately... Time to talk about the U.S. men's national team. And this is a subject that has become sore in recent months and years. Um, I only know of one U.S. national team. And and they are the World Cup champions. Yep. And one of them just won FIFA Player of the Year. And Congratulations to Carly Lloyd, by the way. And another one just won Coach of the Year. Yes. Congrats to her, too. Her name is Jill Ellis. Yes, it is. She went to William & Mary. And she went to high school in the D.C. area. Yeah. And I'm not 100% that either of them deserve to win their awards. <laughs> I'm happy for them. Yes. I'm happy for them. But I'm not 100% sure. I'm I'm less sure about Carly Lloyd. Well, because yes, Becky Sauerbrunn Sauer should, should have won that award. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Carly Lloyd won because she had the best possible game on the biggest possible stage. And that definitely deserves its own recognition. We're not going to get into that debate, though, right now, because we have more timely, if less important, competitively, um, issues to talk about. And that is the U.S. men's national team January camp. D.C. United has two, three, if you count a guy who's no longer under contract, players in California right now for the camp. It started today as we're recording this, January 11th. And it'll run through. It should have started a week the, ago. 
<laughs> we can get into that if you want to, Ben. <laughs> It'll run through the end of the month, essentially, with friendlies against Iceland on January 31st and Canada on February 5th. Bill Hamid was on the original list. He's joined now by Steve Birnbaum and Perry Kitchen, who were added uh, a little bit after that initial list came out. The The whole roster is a mix of veterans and really young guys, who many of whom do not have any business being with the senior team right now, some of whom do. Um, but the idea is to prep the youngsters for... Uh, who are on the U23 roster for their final Olympic qualifiers against Colombia uh, in March. So my first question is DC United specific, Ben, and that is, do we actually want DC United players on Jurgen Klinsmann's roster, knowing the ridiculous physical ordeals, the feats of strength he, he puts them through? I mean, I was fine with Bill Hamid because Bill Hamid is obviously the best goalkeeper in the U.S. pool right now and uh, deserves to be there. And since he's a goalkeeper, he's probably not going to get as run down by Jurgen. And he is a freak of nature physically, and I, I don't think he can possibly be hurt by anything uh, that Jurgen can throw at him. But st- I'm much more conflicted about Steve Birnbaum, especially since Jorgen broke him at the, for the beginning of the season last year. And well, he, he, he tripped on a ball last year, didn't he? Uh, well, I, I was having this argument on the internet. Like, like you do. It's very possible that he only tripped on the ball because Jorgen had run him into the ground. So he was too tired to avoid said ball. So I'm still willing to be, biased without any evidence and put the blame on Jurgen, regardless. Uh, and if he had been sitting at home, there would have been no ball to trip on. He would have been on his couch, hanging out, playing video games or playing Settlers of Catan or whatever the DC United youngins do. Jason, what do you make of the mix on the roster? It includes a couple of college kids, like speaking of young guys, it includes Jordan Morris and Brandon Minson. It also includes mixed disc has ever played a, a professional minute. It also includes some guys that we already know who they are as players. And there's mixed disc root, of course, but there's also some guys who've just never been a part of the national team picture guys like Luis Robles, Tony Chani, who are well past the, uh, the age where they can be called young guys, but they're in for, you know, they may have had been in camp before, but they've never been a real fixture uh, on the national team. What do you make of the, the kind of weird mix that Klinsman has put together? Uh, I've, I think for my own sanity, I've just stopped having expectations for any men's national team roster. Um, I think it's actually helped quite a bit because when things That's get remarkably weird, healthy of you, when, when things get weird, you're just like, Oh, it, it doesn't make any more or less difference. It's just, there's just one default response of either that was surprisingly not weird, or this is unsurprisingly very weird. Um, you can go down the whole list. I mean, David David Bingham getting called in is a strange one because um, he's not age eligible for the Olympics. So he's certainly as an MLS, um, an American born MLS goalkeeper is was not a player that I thought was anywhere near uh, so much as a sniff of uh, a January call up. Um, that one's sort of 
it happened and no one said anything. I thought that was that in and of itself was strange. I thought the whole thing was strange. Um, Robles, I mean, he was goalkeeper of the year. Not that he deserved it, but he was. Um, I suppose uh, Klinsman's goalkeeping uh, analysis of what makes a good goalkeeper has been pretty suspect uh, over the over his entire tenure. So I can't be too surprised that he is calling in guys that are clearly way behind Hamid and probably a couple other American goalkeepers in MLS. Um, but some of, some of what I object to is just the positions that were handed out. I mean, Kellen Acosta is listed as a defender when he has played as a right or left back, but he's clearly a midfielder. Um, and FC Dallas made, made it clear that they were going to use him as a midfielder. I think Oscar Pereja even said that you know, earlier, much earlier in 2015 said that they were going to play him in midfield, even if, over the short term, it, it was a problem. If he had to learn on the job, then so be it. Um, but they weren't go- just going to play him at fullback to get him on the field. He was going to learn his real position by playing it. Um, so that's that's a strange one. Um, Eric Miller from Montreal can barely get a game, uh, can barely even make the bench for the impact, and he's getting called in. That worries me that we can't do better. Um, and the sad thing is, I don't know that we can. I don't have a, a name that I'm saying that he's he's being called in because he's young, because he's um, eligible for the Olympics. I don't know that there is a better uh, option, and that's not a good sign for the Olympic team. Um, because Eric Miller, uh, he hasn't really improved in his time in MLS, and there's just nothing that I, I don't see a player there that is particularly worth the investment of time uh, from the national team program. Um, Tim Parker, that's a good call in. Um, he played very well for, uh, for Vancouver whenever he got called in. Unfortunately for the Whitecaps, pretty much everything they do short of winning MLS Cup is going to get ignored. Um, that's just their lot in life somehow. They don't have the drama of TFC and Montreal. They just sort of quietly go about having an effective team and, and people just forget that they exist essentially. Um, but Tim Parker is a very good player, a very good defender. Um, Brandon Vincent you mentioned got called in. Um, I don't know why only Stanford players get called in because uh, they are the national champions, but I don't know that they necessarily won in a very good year for college soccer. It's um, also within a helicopter ride of Los Angeles. Yeah, it, so Klinsman could, could maybe get there to watch their games from time to time. He, and he could also he just is, pick them up. He, he <laughs> is going to be picked pretty early in the draft, uh, but I don't know that he's, a player that I think of as starter on the Olympic team getting capped for the, the senior national team. I don't think of him in that way. I think he's going to be a very good MLS player, but I don't know that he's got uh world cup qualifying on in his future um, as a player. Um, and then there's some oddball ones. I mean, Jermaine Jones get called in and he's not attached to a club. He shoved a referee, a, amongst other things at RFK in the playoffs, he's got a suspension sitting over his head that he apparently just doesn't register that, it, that he, his quote after the game registered that he understood that how bad that was and how it was not a good thing for a national team player to do his quotes since that day have all been like, I don't deserve essentially have been like, I don't deserve this punishment that I've been given um, when he absolutely does. Um, and also we're talking about a 34 year old at this point, the team needs to move past a player like Jermaine Jones, certainly in an experimental camp rather than a, uh, you know, this isn't world cup qualifying. This is an experimental camp. 
it's time to move past 34 year olds at this point. There should be, really be an age limit on this camp. Um, and it shouldn't be 34. It, it should, should be, be like, like 28. Yeah. It, like if you have a, it, like at this point in your career, if you're not, if you're 27, 28 and you, there's no room to grow at this point. You need to be established. Except maybe for goalkeepers. Yeah. Yeah. Goalkeepers, maybe, but, but even then we have enough young, good. Also, also it should be 28 so we can exclude Luis Robles. I don't want to actively ex- exclude Robles. I, I want to, I want to evaluate him honestly. I just don't think he's as good as he is often given credit for being. Um, a, a lot of, I mean, it's nice to see Lee win. Um, Tony Chani, there's a, a cap issue there where he could be capped for Cameroon as well as for the U.S. So, but I he's not what, super young. He's not someone who's no, going to contribute to like three or four World Cup cycles either. I could still see why they would say, "Well, let's just get him under, you know, just in case." Maybe, maybe Klinsman holds him as the most similar to Jermaine Jones in the player pool. In which case, I don't know that that's accurate, but at least it, there's a thought process there. I hope that that's why. Um, with the forward, would still be a pretty weak reasoning. Yeah, but I, you know, at this point, I'm willing to accept that there's any reasoning. Tony Chani's a good player. Don't get me wrong; I like him a lot as a player, but I just I don't see his place here. Um, I, I guess the other issue I have when I look at the forwards is I know Kyrie Shelton plays for the U23s. It's not really a great reflection on their uh, attacking abilities or on MLS teams for to be able to get. MLS as a league, as well as to individual teams to get those players, because Shelton's fast. Um, there's a certain rawness to his game that makes you think maybe there's a, a high ceiling there. But at the same time, I don't just want like if a guy is fast and that's it, I don't think that should be enough to get you a, a sure spot on the Olympic roster and a, a call up to the senior national team camp. Um I don't know. It, it's kind of underwhelming, but it's it's maybe better than I expected. So I have to accept that, you know, sometimes I can't complain. I think we're in the early stages of Stockholm Syndrome with Jurgen Klinsmann. It's like, well, this, this roster isn't as bad as it could be. Maybe he's okay. He's not. Yeah, we're not, we're not defending his every move at this point. I mean, there are some fans who are, but those of us on this podcast are not in the tank for, for Klinsman, for lack of a better way of putting it. But we were certainly more accepting of his quirks than we may have been at one point. That said, Ben, I have in my notes here, WTF is with Jermaine Jones. Why is he in this lineup? Well, we already talked about it a little bit. It's because he's out of contract. He has nowhere else to go. So why not? put him in here. He's in theory a veteran leader, even though he's probably going to be suspended from both club and international play for a little while here uh, pretty soon. Uh, but yeah, it's basically he has nowhere else to go. Jurgen likes him. Jurgen wants to keep him fit and in training for a hopeful move or for his next season with New England or whatever. Uh, it's it's a bad decision, I think, overall. I think as as galling as it is to say he probably should have chosen someone like Dax McCarty instead uh that's former DC United attacking midfielder and Dax captain McCarty. and uh, captain i mean yeah like the first camp camp cupcake i really watched was the one where Dax McCarty uh broke out i believe it was 2010 or 2011 uh but so i have a, i have a soft spot for Dax um, but he definitely should have been there over Jermaine Jones. And it, it's a, it's, 
a silly proposition, but it's very Jurgen. So to end this segment on a little bit of a happier note, before we open up the Twitter box, Jason, who are you actually glad about seeing in camp right now? Who, who are you happy to see on this roster? Um, I mean, besides Bill Hamid and Steve Birnbaum. Yes. Okay. Um, because those are obvious and cop out answers. I guess, I mean, I'm glad Darlington Nagby is getting more call-ins. Um, so long as he's used in the middle. Right. Um, which is honestly is going to be a mystery as long as long as Klinsman is coach, because we can't ever rely on him not doing something that is bizarre or transparently wrong. Um, Lee Wynn got called in again. That's nice. If you want to see the team attack, um, I think it's another situation where he'll get a cap in a January friendly or two and then not get called in when the games count, which kind of makes the whole thing moot. Um, but, I, you know, I would like to see him involved because I feel like he could really help with the mass defenses that the U S is likely to see in the rest of the, at least in this group stage, um, someone with his dribbling ability that can play in the middle that can open things up. Um, he's not necessarily going to start, but I think he'd be a useful player bringing in off the bench. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's no, there's no name that I'm like, wow, that's really awesome that that guy got called in. Um, Matt Polster, I should have mentioned him as a player who's being listed as a defender, which is wrong. Um, he's clearly better as a defensive midfielder. I think Chicago learned that all season and yet somehow through the, the powers of Frankie Allup decided that they would play him at right back like 30% of the time. Um, overall though, it's, it's not, there's no thrilling new name on the roster. Ethan Finley's on there, but he's listed as a forward. Will he be end up, will he end up wide in a four, three, three, then, okay. That makes some sense, but otherwise, you know, in a four, two, three, one, it also works. But after that, if, if they play the flat four, four, two, as Klinsman has somehow done and, or sometimes done, it doesn't really make any sense. So, um, as always, everything comes with a caveat. And so I, I can get excited about what I would do with players on, on the roster and, and what they could be used for in, in conjunction with each other. But I can't get excited because I don't know what Klinsman is going to do with them or what, you know, Nagby could play on the right the whole time. Um, Finley could be used as a forward in a two forward setup. It wouldn't make any sense, but, you know, I think everyone that listens to the show knows that we don't really understand why Klinsman does what he does. I don't even know if Klinsman understands why he does what he does. Um, I'm sure he doesn't. That's that's kind of the basis of my He probably convinces opinion. himself that he knows what he's doing. Um, I think convincing himself is a major part of what makes Jurgen Klinsman Jurgen Klinsman. There's a huge part of me that thinks he's just like going further and further out into left field waiting to be fired. He just wants to see how much he can get away with. There's a huge part of me that thinks and that that's actually the case. And with Sunil, he'll be able to get away with anything up up until I, I mean, to qualify for a World Cup. He's so far Which, out in left field now, he's no longer in the ballpark. But, and here's the sad thing is that in CONCACAF, even fielding bizarro lineups, the team can still end up qualifying. CONCACAF is oh, not yeah. very good. CONCACAF is not very good right now. Mexico is pretty good right now. But after that, Honduras would, has gotten worse. Jamaica take, has gotten worse. Even with, um, even there's with Costa Rica still. Even Costa Rica gonna, has regressed quite a bit since the World Cup. Even yeah, if you're going to take a disaster for the United States not to qualify. Yeah. Um, Which so, is both good and bad. So I, 
I mean, I, I would say it's bad. It's bad for, for the players as far as getting better. Um, it's bad as far as finding something out before the World Cup because we really don't get a chance to find out what this team is capable of other than at Azteca and at uh, the Estadio Saprissa in, in Costa Rica, assuming that they continue playing their matches there. Um, mm-hmm. Those are the only two games that really actually test what this team is capable of. Every trip in CONCACAF is unpleasant. You know, it's difficult to get to a lot of these places. The field is bad. The stadium is bad, et cetera. Um, but the teams that you're playing are not good enough to make that actually a, a real lesson or a real test of anyone. Um, and so that's why it's so disappointing if they lose to the Guatemalas of the world. Um, because even if it's difficult to get there and even if the situation, you know, it's humid and it's hard to get to the stadium and they wake you up in the middle of the night with parties in the street, that doesn't mitigate the fact that Guatemala has like, three good players, uh, three MLS-capable players, much less three U.S. men's national team-capable players. Marco Papo probably would get called into the January camp, but not into uh, a qualifying camp. And Marco Papo is the best player Guatemala has. Yeah, Luckily, this year is a little bit different with the Copa America Centenario happening. Um, The U.S. will be able to test themselves against higher opposition. I'm not optimistic for how that's going to turn out, but Luckily, we get to see it, at least. I mean, it is on U.S. soil, though our listeners, for the most part, are going to have to make the hike up I-95 to go to Philadelphia because FedEx Field is not a stadium that's acceptable for human use. No, <laughs> and that's a completely um, reasonable decision, if yeah. unfortunate for us. No, it, it sucks, but that place is terrible. So, um, it and it's really not, is. I'm not saying it's terrible think- that it's falling apart. I'm saying it's just an unpleasant place to go to or to be or to leave. I think there are still people trying to leave FedEx from the last time that there was a USMNT game there. There probably are people trapped there. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, people people have Philadelphia. It's not too far. Um, it's not too unpleasant of a drive. You do have to pay some tolls, but you know you can live with it. Um, you can also take the Amtrak. Yeah, that's true. That's it's not a bad. I've deal. done it. It's an easy Amtrak ride. Yeah. Let's open up the Twitter box now. Turn our attention to the end of the show. Pew, We've pew, got pew. a. I have no idea what Ben just did. That's for that, the record, that might be the new Twitter box sound tag. <laughs> Don't don't let that be the new Twitter box sound tag. <laughs> First question comes from Michael Spatz, who is at Diet Coco, uh, K-O-K-O, on Twitter. He asks us, at filibuster DCU, when is the next time a DC United player will be in the MLS Best 11? Next year, Bill Hamid. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... That, that's the obvious answer. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, say Bill Hamid is sold in the summer transfer window, to He'll be that good. somebody in Europe. It won't matter. He will still be the... I don't know. I, has MLS ever named someone of the best 11 who wasn't on the, the season-ending roster? Season-ending? Well, I mean, Amado Guevara won the MVP in 2004, having played a good first half of the season and done nothing past July. Right, but um, he was still on the roster. He was still on the roster, but he was terrible for the back half of that season, and Jaime Moreno was robbed. Right, and then Christian Gomez played the back half of a season only, transferred in the the, the yes. summer window, and basically and D-Row, and basically D-Row as well in 2011. Yeah, although he also scored goals for TFC and New York before he ended up in DC. Right. Um, 
Yeah, Bill Hamid's the obvious, most likely answer, but if he's not on the team this time next year, it... Colin Martin. (laughs) Player to be named later that hasn't signed for the team. Yeah, honestly, I mean, there there are enough... There are enough really quality players on DC United that if they hit a good run of form, they, they could potentially be there. Patrick Miarko could have a just a ridiculous season. If, Steven if Birnbaum they, right, really is probably the best candidate. Yeah. If they do another 59 point season based on good defending them, Birnbaum or Boswell will, will get named as sort of a group achievement award, which is how Boswell got on in 2014. Um, and it won't be necessarily based on deep analysis from the entire nation's worth of MLS observers. It'll be people because unfortunately a lot of the MLS best 11 voting is determined by people looking at the standings at the end of the season and saying, Oh, this team was really good at defense. I better add one of their players in. Um, and that'll be how it gets done. But I mean, at least it'll get done, but yeah, I think Adam's right. Steve Birnbaum is probably the best, the next best hope after Bill Hamid. Uh, Michael has a second question for us. Uh, who is the DC United? He, he, he says, or MLS player, but let's focus on, let, let's treat this as two different categories. Who is the DC United player and who's the MLS player you would most take as your partner in a fight? And, and for DC United, the answer is really easy for me. I want Fabiana Spindola. It's a good one. I feel like, especially in like an alley somewhere, Fabio. This is a street fight. The guy I want on my side. But, you know, I feel like we probably should have asked for follow ups on what kind of fight this is, where it takes place. Is it a. I've spent a lot of time, (laughs) specifically in buffets, uh, while abusing the all you can eat thing, um, dealing with the question of who would win in a fight. Uh, But the first thing you've got to get to before any of that is well, what kind of fight are we talking about here? Is also, this a, also regardless of type of fight, Bill Hamid is the most ripped person on the current roster. So I want Bill Hamid. I mean, that's a, that's a good strategy because he's fast and strong. Um, uh, and for, and for MLS, I think the, my answer is obvious. I want Alan Gordon cause he's going to fight dirty. See, I was actually going to go a different way. If he wasn't injured all the time, I would have gone with Steven Lenhart. But he's injured all the time. He would like flop around. And I think he just retired. I think Lenhart yeah. may have retired this week. I didn't see that. I didn't see it either. I, I thought I saw that somewhere. I think you're making that up. <laughs> I like that it's not like I didn't see it, so therefore I don't know. It's it's no, you're making that up. I don't know. I feel like I saw that somewhere. Okay. Well, let's leave. Let's uh, uh, just like Jordan Jesse go the podcast. If you have any corrections for us, please send them to at Ted Cruz on t- on Here, Twitter. Centerline soccer. Stephen Lenhart uh, has he played his last game for the San Jose Earthquakes? That that doesn't say anything. It totally says something. Ha- has he means the question is still open. <laughs> um, but in any case, I don't think either of those guys would be the best person to bring in when you want to, you, who you really want to bring in is someone who fights dirty and gets away with it. So someone like Seth Sinovich, um, who is never punished for his near constant, uh, dirty play. If David um, Beckham were still in the league, David Beckham. No, I wouldn't want David Beckham anywhere near my team on a fight, um, because he's a coward. Uh, true, true. <laughs> He's not a trustworthy person. He would probably I mean, stab you in the back and join your opponents. The obvious choice would be Dima Kovalenko. Kovalenko. Yes. Uh, Dima Kovalenko is made of iron and rage. Um, <laughs> and I don't think anyone would want to fight him. 
Um, but he's not in the league anymore. No, he's not. Um, so no, someone like Sinovich, uh, who also happens to, uh, look like A's movie villain, Billy Zabka. Um, even though that means inevitably he would lose those fights. Um, I'm still willing to take a chance on the fact that he might have picked up martial arts just by looking like Billy Zabka. Um, he'd be good, but I think a spindola is definitely your street fight candidate. Yeah. Um, whereas if this is a, a regulated fight, then certainly, um, Hamid becomes a much more appealing option because the the same things that would make Espindola excellent at street fights would make him bad at a fight where there's a referee or any sort of rules <laughs> whatsoever. It depends. Do you want to fight the referee? No. Well, you don't fight a referee. You either like eliminate I mean, the referee from being able to if you ever watch WWE. Not. Sometimes you fight the referee. No, but you don't fight the referee. You hit him in the back of the head so he's knocked out until it's time for him to come to to uh, you know give you your ill-gotten win. Yeah, um, All right, you don't really case, fight him. You, you attack him while he's not looking. That's enough WWE talk. <laughs> <laughs> Our last question tonight comes limit? from. Everybody, Our last question tonight comes. The limit. Come on, Fahul gods. Really, guys, you're not going to let me get through this? I said come on, Fahul gods. Our last question tonight comes from Filmy Girl, who is at Filmy Girl on Twitter, asks us, at FilibusterDCU, who who are the big name, or sorry, do big name signings of old players looking for one last paycheck help or hurt MLS? What's the difference between short and long term gains there? I think she's referring to the LA Galaxy and wow. their uh reported signing of Ashley. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can't get through it with a straight face. Ashley Cole <laughs> is going to the LA Galaxy, apparently. Um this is a guy who at one point was a world class left fullback and then he went to Roma because he wasn't quote ready to relax on a beach yet and sign with MLS. Um, he had his contract terminated. It was reportedly a mutual termination of his contract last summer with Roma. And he's been out of contract for, you know, the last half year or so. And now he's going to be signing with the LA galaxy where they already have a left back by the name of Robbie Rogers. Um, so she's asking a more broad question. Old, washed up players coming for one last paycheck. I think that era has largely passed MLS. I don't know what Bruce arena is doing out in LA right now, but given his track record, somehow he has to get the benefit benefit of the doubt here. Um, Is this really just arena saying let's sign Ashley Cole, or is this somebody further up AEG saying you need to have a premier league player playing here? Cause we're the LA galaxy. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know either way. Ashley Cole is not the person I would have gone for. I wouldn't pay Ashley Cole the senior minimum to play on DC United. No. He wouldn't get the senior minimum return. No, he's... He's old and bad and not interested in taking this seriously. He's also a famously terrible teammate. Yes, but he's not interested in taking the league seriously. Um, He brings less than nothing to the table. He brings only negatives to the table at this point. Um, Used to be a a top, top quality left back, but those years are long past and you don't recover them in a league where you have to fly cross country for real, not English cross country, which is, you know, a trip to Richmond from DC. Um, And also, also MLS is as Steven Gerrard found out very physical. Right. I mean, to a fault. 
But when you're a 34 or 35 year old player who's um, used to playing for these big clubs where everyone just stands off you and, and tries to defend only their box uh, when a random, you know, a rookie from, uh, I don't know, RSL, you know, someone like Luke Mulholland runs you over because that's how MLS works. Um, it's a surprise. It's what are you even doing to me? And Luke Mulholland or the equivalent for whatever team happens to be, you have to be placing probably turns around and yells trying to win at soccer. Um, which it turns out a lot of these guys are surprised. They're, they're kind of surprised that these regular dudes that are making up the rest of the league are trying to win the game. They're not just yeah. there to, you know, they, they don't make know their numbers up so that you can have your glory. Um, they're trying to win because they're competitors. Um, so if a guy's, I guess to take the question at its wording, if a player is coming here for a paycheck, no, it's never, it has never been worth it other than arguably Beckham because of the sea change that he instigated. And, and even Beckham, he wasn't as old as we all think he was when he first came here. He's what, 32? When yeah, he, he still had some, he wasn't coming for one last paycheck. Yeah, he was like, coming for a couple of paychecks. A 32-year-old But still... also because he wanted to come play. Like, he, he put it in the work. He figured right. it out. Well... At, at a certain point, he put in the work. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, a, 32, um, a 32-year-old can still make a difference. If you're coming over yes. here at 35, unless you're Zlatan, you, you're, not, you're probably not going to make a difference. But the, the major thing is that you have to come here trying to do well. Yes. Um, it has to be important to you to, to, to succeed. Kaká showed up in Orlando and made the effort, not just on the field, but away from yes. away from everything. Even Didier Drogba, who is trying to leave Montreal, um, during while he was in Montreal, was was getting rave reviews for not just. I mean, he was taking time to talk to academy kids, you know, yeah. players that might never wear the Impact jersey in a senior game. Um, so those are the things that you when you're going to sign a guy that's in his mid thirties, who's on his last legs. Yes, you're signing a player who's looking for one last payday, but you want to make sure that you're getting value for the money. And yeah, there's a difference between guys like Kaká, Drogba, and Jovinko, and Robbie Keane, and then guys like Ashley Cole. They're they're just different universes of of well, especially Jovinko. He's what yeah. 27. Yeah, he's not coming. He's not over here no. late. That's if true. You, he's not making have, his career. If you have 10 million a year to spend on somebody for your salary. I don't know that you're going to do better than Giovinco in world soccer at this point. Um, to, uh, willing to come to MLS, I'm saying. Um, right. There are the list of guys that are going to do that are short. And uh, it, before Giovinco, I would have said don't exist. Um, but uh, it might be a list of one. Right. So you know, if you're if you're especially if you're not the Red Bulls or the Galaxy or TFC or Montreal, who has them enough money from, from Saputo cheese sales, I guess, to spend on a Drogba-level player. Um, for for everyone else, no, it's unquestionably not worth it. Um, it's not even close to worth it. Um, if you're those clubs, you've got you've to investigate the person. Before you even start looking at salary figures, you've got to learn about who you're signing. Um, and figure out whether this guy is coming here just to get paid and kick a ball around or if he's coming to go to work. Because if he's coming to go to work, then you can start to look at, like, okay, now it's worth it to, you know, talk to ownership about how much money is involved here. But until that point, um, until you know that the player truly wants to work hard and win things for your club and not just hang out and play, quote-unquote, um, 
in MLS, that that's the first thing you've got to jump over. And in most cases, you're going to find out that they probably don't care enough because MLS is a, is a weird and difficult league because of the travel, the facilities, the, the weird rules in place. Um, it's, it's a strange beast and players have to be willing to adapt to it. Just like coaches have to be willing to adapt to it. That's it for this week's show. Thank you all for listening. Find us at blackandredunited.com. We're also on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the podcast at blackandredu for the website. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, we are looking for artwork to force Ben to put onto his wall. So send that into us. As always, we also accept love letters, hate mail, and advertising inquiries. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud tell a friend about the show we will talk to you real soon until then for jason and ben i'm adam say goodbye jason goodbye jason